Hello and welcome to Spam 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 Humbug, the Ultima Codex podcast. This is episode 3, 7,679 files in 1,156 folders. We'll get to what that means in just a second here. Kotaku hasn't exactly proven itself to be the best gaming website, um, well, ever. But they took a break from posting articles about the histories of dicks, penises, just so we're clear, not toxic jerks, in video gaming. And they inadvertently published a actually truly excellent article that examined the creation of the soundtrack for Gearbox's Homeworld Remastered. So this was uh, when THQ dissolved. The Homeworld IP, of course, was uh, part of THQ's portfolio. It came up for auction and it was acquired by Gearbox Software. Um, they don't exactly have the most impressive portfolio themselves. The Duke Nukem Forever, for example, or that Aliens game that was universally panned. Um, <clears throat> but they did acquire Homeworld, which was, of course, originally created by Relic out of Vancouver. And by all accounts, they did an absolutely bang-up job of completely remastering Homeworld for modern systems. And, of course, key to the Homeworld experience is the audio. It's it's very... There have been a number of excellent articles written about just how the audio in the game has really shaped the experience of playing Homeworld. It's, you know, at times pulse-pounding, but at times haunting and amplifies the the desolate feeling of space. At times, the audio cues in the game are about as spartan as you would expect traveling in space to sound like. Um, Just, you know, the occasional calm burst from one of your ships and little else. So anyways, this this article that Kotaku ran... uh, truly excellent article, and the quality of it was probably helped by the fact that it was written by Paul Ruske, and I hope I pronounced that even halfway correct. Um, He's been doing audio work for computer games since the mid-90s, and he actually helped shape the sound of the original Homeworld games, in addition to leading the effort to remaster the audio for the recent re-release. And the article itself is a fantastic look at the process by which the audio for the games was remastered from the original backup tapes, or hard drives in the case of the Homeworld 2 soundtrack, to their final version. And that's where the podcast title actually comes from. That is how many sound files the remastered Homeworld games contain, and how many folders exist to contain all of them. So, you know, just to give an idea of what what Mr. Ruske talks about in the article... Um, the retail speech files he talks about here, for example, were 11 kilohertz and compressed further with a proprietary codec created by Relic. And this was so that the speech could fit onto a 680 megabyte CD-ROM. Ruske, of course, himself had access to the original backup tapes, uh, which were stored on DAT tapes. They sat in a shoebox, of all things, for 14 years before being used again. And somehow the music, especially, survived uncorrupted. 
So it looks like the effort to remaster the audio, at least for Homeworld, began in about 2013. Um, yeah. So there were CD-ROM backups of speech recordings for all of Homeworld 2, as well as uh, CD backups of the Game of the Year soundtrack release of Homeworld. By 2003, he says, um, Studio X Labs, this is where he worked, had switched over to Protocol 6, so those data sessions for the voice recordings were all backed up. Um, and the soundtrack was also composed of Protocol 6 sessions that had been moved between hard drives over the years. Uh, essentially, Ruske just took it upon himself to migrate between hard drives as formats became obsolete. So, despite some of the, you know, potential for disaster there, it looks like most of the audio, if not the entirety of the audio for Homeworld, was available in its original source format. And essentially the task before him was replacing all of the retail release files from the original Homeworld with full fidelity uncompressed versions. And he notes here that it would have been an impossible task, he says, if done manually, but one of the programmers at Gearbox, Dave Eaton, evidently developed an audio fingerprinting utility that let them comb through the thousands of file directories looking for waveform matches. That said, of course, there was still a lot of verifying and testing. Um, so a lot of his work was just playing the game and listening to the raw audio source. And then in some cases, he also took it upon himself to, you know, add more layers to the music. Uh, for the Homeworld 1 music, for example, it only existed, the, the, even though he had the source, the source was already in the format of stereo mixes. So he would add additional layers to widen or deepen the overall mix, um, occasional little elements here and there, while still trying to preserve the overall feel of the soundtrack. Anyways, it's a fascinating article. The link will be in the show notes. I definitely recommend reading it if you want to read an absolutely great story about producing audio for a computer game. Homeworld Remastered, of course, for its part, seems to be, as I mentioned, a really excellent collection, at least based on the reviews that I've seen for it. And, yeah, the sound design, which again, remains a truly excellent part of the game and gives Homeworld so much of its unique feel and atmosphere um, in these reviews tends to get singled out for a particular praise. If you haven't ever played Homeworld, um, you really owe it to yourself to do so. It is an experience that really has no parallel um, in the RTS genre. Um... And also, it is kind of unique in terms of the feel of the game, in terms of you know this this you know all the all these emotions of you know hopelessness and and desperation and um, curiosity and exploration, and then you know until the final 
victory of the game itself is uh it is really genuinely a one-of-a-kind thing and that's the original homeworld homeworld 2 is almost as good but there's just something about you know the fact that in homeworld 1 you know you're you're kind of on the the last voyage of your race i mean it's got a bit of a battlestar galactica vibe to it and playing out playing through that just has this gravitas that um homeworld 2 doesn't quite recapture so moving on um did y'all hear about the super mario 64 tribute that popped up last week essentially a unity developer by the name of royston ross he built a unity based what else remake of the original game's first level bob battlefield and he released it as a free web playable demo that he called super mario 64 hd and if you didn't hear about it then you're now officially hearing about it too late nintendo did issue a cease and desist order for that one which i suppose was kind of an obvious one but this too this was a really interesting thing it was uh mostly stable it was fun to play i mean i never really grew up playing consoles but i did have some experience with super mario 64 um you know, I enjoyed it for what it was, for what little experience I had of it. And it was neat to see someone try and remake it and make it look effortless to do so um, using, you know, what else, the, the engine that's everywhere, Unity. And even if Nintendo has shut the project down, I seriously hope they consider um, taking a cue from it and making a remaster of the game. There was also a bit of a meme floating around a while back concerning Link, uh, the protagonist, although not the titular character, of the Legend of Zelda games. And I didn't really follow it because I don't always go for the clickbait, uh, especially clickbait of this nature. But basically, as I understand it, the meme centered around whether Link, the character, would work just as well as a female. I don't know if the discussion also focused on whether or not the character of Zelda would work as a male, as I said, I didn't really follow it closely. I did take note of TechRaptor's take on the matter, which was basically to argue that Link... Initially, they used the, the argument that Link can't really be reimagined as a female character, which I suppose technically isn't true. I mean, there's nothing stopping him from being reimagined as such. But they do argue that there would really be no need for the exercise because the Zelda series already has actually a powerful female protagonist character. She's not a player character, but there's no reason that a game surrounding her couldn't be created. That's the character of Sheik, who actually happens, of course, to be Zelda herself, if you're familiar with the lore of the series, um, albeit in disguise. She's kind of dressed up like, a, I guess, a assassin would be an all right word to use there rather than envision a game in which Link is recast as female, TechRaptor argues, why not envision a game in which the player takes on the role of Shake? I don't really have any further comment here, I just thought it was kind of an interesting counterpoint to um, stuff that was being run on other sites, like I think actually Kotaku, possibly the Mary Sue, and a few others. 
switching gears here. Um, I've been called in for computer help by a couple of people in recent weeks. Uh, one of my kidlets' godparents asked for some help securing files and folders on her computer, and actually just last night, I was attempting to help my sister-in-law deal with a rather nasty piece of rogue anti-spyware via phone, no less, because she lives a, a good distance away from us, over a thousand kilometers. And this reminded me that I've actually been sitting on a couple of lists in utili uh, lists of utilities in my pocket queue that I wanted to bring up on the codex at some point as kind of a PSA. So here we go. Uh, the first, and these are all from Lifehacker, which, <clears throat> despite being a Gawker network site, <clears throat> um, is actually one of the most more handy websites out there. Um, I think because they, you know, tend to just stick to just they just tend to stick to their topic right like they're here to to give you handy tools and utilities and tips and tricks for making your life better and easier and they don't deviate a lot from that formula so anyways uh first off they have this list of you know 10 incredibly useful windows programs to have on hand um at their number 10 spot is something called Specky. It's made by Piriform. Uh, if I recall correctly, these are the guys who also make CCleaner, another handy utility. And basically what Specky does is it gives you a quick glance at um, basically everything. The entire hardware environment of your computer. Um model numbers of individual devices and components, temperatures where available, fan speeds, smart status, um, pretty much everything. And it's also actually available as a portable application in case you want to keep it on a USB stick rather than install it on the drive. Um, I've used Specky in the past. I usually keep it installed. Uh, WinAudit is another handy tool I've found that you know gives a lot of the same information. At their number nine spot, there's something called the Ultimate Windows Tweaker. It's basically what it says. It's uh, a way to just um, adjust all the little, to just adjust every little finicky detail about Windows. Um, if you want to remove the volume icon or the network icon from the notification tray, if you want to uh, remove the taskbar entirely. If you want to put the clock in the middle of the notification area, you can define thumbnail sizes down to the pixel. You can define view uh, margins uh, on the edges of the screen. Um, there's also security features. Uh, you can tweak the lock screen. Basically, just about anything you can imagine, you can adjust with this. At the number eight spot, they have... Uh, they kind of cheat and they just call it stress testing utility. So it's not any one utility. Um, I've never actually found too, too much use for these, but you know, some of you do care to benchmark. So they list uh, a few options there for that at their number seven spot. Again, they kind of cheat and they list three different programs, malware bytes, anti-malware, virus total, and ADW cleaner. Um, the virus total one, is kind of the odd duck out there because it isn't itself a cleaner, whereas Malwarebytes, Anti-Malware, and ADW Cleaner are. 
The virus total uploader is basically just a little tool that lets you take any individual file and you can upload it and it'll be scanned with something like 50 antivirus tools at once. So it's a really great way to, you know, check on something that you're not really sure about. Uh, you know, you've downloaded it and you're kind of suspicious as to whether it contains only what it says. Malwarebytes Any Malware, I hope, is well known to most people here. It's a great utility for rooting out um, all kinds of spyware and malware and just, you know, the other nasty stuff that doesn't quite fall under the label of virus that you can pick up on the internet. Um, there's a free version. You know, you have to run it manually. So you don't, the, the advantage of the pro version is that, you know, you get like active detection and scheduled scanning. Uh, the free version, though, works perfectly fine. If you make a note for yourself to run it once a week, it's a great tool to have installed in your computer. And ADW Cleaner is very similar in that respect. At the number six spot, the Magical Jelly Bean Key Finder, which, yeah, is... <laughs> basically it exists to help you find your windows product key um the only catch of course is that you know you're going to want to make sure you install it clean it does come bundled with a lot of crapware but if for whatever reason you want to keep track of your windows product keys this is a handy thing to have at the number five spot process explorer um this is basically the task manager on steroids. Uh, so, you know, if you look in task manager, you might see um, SVC host, the service, ho the service host executable running. And you might see multiple instances of the service host executable running uh, just within task manager. What Process Explorer does, it'll actually let you peer into that running process and see which processes are running through it. Uh, so, you know, much more granular look at what's actually running on your system and where. Number four, again, two utilities listed here. One is UNet Bootin and the other one is Yumi. Um, basically, these are tools for running Windows, sorry, running Linux on top of Windows. Uh, I think I'm going to have to avail myself of them a little bit more in the future, um, just because the codex has had some issues um, with formatting on Linux uh, versus formatting on OS X or Windows. Number three is something called Wireless Network Watcher. Uh, this is by a company called Nearsoft, uh, N-I-R-S-O-F-T. And these guys actually, be careful when you wander into the Nearsoft website, not because there's anything bad there, but because there's just too much good stuff there. The, the guys at Nearsoft really develop just all kinds of wacky tools that are immensely useful, but you don't even realize that you have a use for them until you, you know, start reading the description. And then you're just like, oh yeah, actually that's really crazy awesome. And this is one example of it. Um, basically it's just a, you know, it's just a tool for watching what's on your wireless network, but um, like I say, that is just one little trick in Nearsoft's big bag of tricks. At the number two spot, uh, they list a program called Windirstat. This is a really useful program. It's basically um, presents you with, you know, a graphical representation of the contents of your hard drive. So it's really, really useful for finding 
where you're using up your space. Um, you use this periodically on, you know, like my tablet when it starts to run low on memory. Um, very easy to quickly identify the largest folders or the large files that are causing the problem and get rid of them. And the last one at the number one spot is called Sandboxy. And if you've not heard of this, this is uh, a really great tool to have in your back pocket um, for security reasons. What Sandboxy does is uh, essentially it sandboxes applications. So, you know, it allows you to run programs more or less independent of the rest of the system. So, you know, they don't have uh, the ability to write to anywhere else in your Windows installation unless you explicitly grant them permission to do so. So what that means is, you know, like if you're downloading a file, well, you can grant permission for your browser, your sandboxed browser, to write a file to a folder somewhere. But you have to explicitly grant that permission. If a drive-by script suddenly tries to modify something, that'll get shut down entirely. Um, sandboxing doesn't always work perfectly with every application. Uh, it can create some issues. But if you're, you know, really genuinely worried uh, about Windows security, this is actually a really, really handy tool to have. So that was sort of useful uh, Windows programs, including some uh, security and anti-malware utilities. On the encryption side, uh, another Lifehacker article here talks about some of the encryption tools that are out there. Um, one of them is Viracrypt, which is actually a fork of the more or less defunct TrueCrypt uh, True project. Uh, and basically, it get, you can use this for a few different things. It supports whole disk encryption if you want that. Um, it can also be used to create uh, encrypted USB drives, so the entire drive is encrypted, or it can just be used to create an encrypted archive, uh, you know, say a, a two gig archive that you can then mount as a drive and dump files into, and it will encrypt them with really, really insanely high-grade encryption. Um, another similar utility is called AxCrypt, AXCrypt, it's a free open source utility that uh, one neat thing that it does is it just it can be added to the Windows shell so it can be part of the right click context menu for a file. Um, you can use it to encrypt files or folders individually and it tends to run really really quick. Um, it's a little bit lighter weight than Viracrypt. It doesn't support quite as comprehensive encryption um, but still 128-bit AES is definitely not going to be something that any script kitty with a uh, you know bootable distro a bootable backtrack distro is going to crack overnight AxeScript is actually really useful if you uh, have a lot of stuff stored in the cloud and you want to just selectively encrypt bits and pieces of it um, another one they mentioned is of course BitLocker which is the drive full di it's full disk encryption so it's drive level encryption uh, i think it was introduced with windows vista and it's still present in windows 8 and windows server 2008 um 
it actually does also support though the creation of you know an encrypted virtual drive um, it also supports multiple authentication mechanisms uh, passwords pins USB keys trusted platform module technology um, of course it is Microsoft technology so you know uh, if for whatever reason you treat that as something to trust less then you know that is certainly you know something you're not going to want to look at and there are other options for that um, I've not used BitLocker myself but GNU Privacy Guard um, GNU PG is it's actually just an impl impl implementation of pretty good privacy PGP um, <clears throat> basically just a front end for that again it's open source uh, can do all kinds of file encryption and actually uh, can also this one actually can also do email encryption um, again this is all stuff that you know PGP can do anyways the advantage of something like GNU Privacy Guard GNU PG is that it's you know just a it's a front end that makes PGP a little bit easier to wrangle and actually the the last one they mention here is a utility called 7-zip now it's not actually built as an encryption tool strictly speaking it's built as a, a file archiver as a WinZip alternative and actually in that role it is basically second to none I mean I would recommend it just on that basis but it also has uh, support built in for the creation of encrypted archives and it can actually it can use a few different encryption methods so for example it can use zip crypto when creating just encrypted zip files um, and windows can actually extract those so you know if you need to send an encrypted file to someone wrap it up in a zip file with zip crypto <coughs> excuse me send it to them and then windows their windows at their end at least vista and up should be able to expand it as long as they have the password if you want to save the file as a 7-zip file though you also have access to you know like AES 256 encryption and actually while we're on the subject of security it's worth mentioning uh, some Chrome extensions I, I browse with Chrome um, so it's worth actually mentioning a handful of Chrome extensions that uh, are recommended to install if Chrome happens to be your browser choice as well and some of these might be available for Firefox but I stopped using Firefox a while ago um, so I don't have it installed to test one is Adblock Plus and you have to be careful with this one when you search the Chrome extension store because there's like there there's a ton of apps that are you know trying to get in on the Adblock action the one that really works well is from adblockplus.org uh, so look for that it does exactly what it says it's going to do it blocks almost every ad from view and it also um, <clears throat> has some built-in anti-malware it can remove like the social sharing buttons from view um, can do a few other things besides just block ads another good one is disconnect uh, by disconnect.me which does which overlaps a little bit with ad block at least where adblock blocks social media embedded content so uh, again like the Facebook sharing buttons things like that um, disconnect blocks trackers 
with a principal focus placed on Facebook, Twitter, and Google, but also other trackers as well. And you can selectively whitelist sites with Disconnect. Um, you can also selectively whitelist only, say, Facebook or only, say, Twitter, if for some reason you have a need to do so. And the last one uh, that I definitely recommend is called Flash Control. And what this does is it basically interrupts the execution of Flash and PDF content in in a window. So, you know, if there's an embedded Flash video, um, it won't automatically launch. It'll actually just appear as a gray screen, and you got to click... I find I usually actually have to click twice to get the video to load and, uh, and start playing. But that's good because, you know, I, I mean, I want to be sure that I'm only playing the Flash content I expect to play. Fl Flash is a not bad method for embedding drive-by scripts into web pages. Uh, and the same with PDF files, you know. I, I only want to be opening the files that I intend to open. I want everything else to be blocked. Also, and this is probably going to be amusing to those of you who know my opinion of Linux, um, but I recently came into possession of a trio of HP Mini 1101 laptops. They're woefully underpowered systems, just gutless atom chips and things. And um, I wanted to find a lightweight Linux kernel to run on them to eke as much performance out as possible, and I didn't want something that would require too much additional setup to make kid-friendly. And in searching through some of the different options there, I chanced upon something called Elementary OS, which appears to be a stripped-down Ubuntu build that maintains a fairly light memory and processor usage footprint. I mean, it certainly runs well enough on the Atom chips in the 1101s, but which does so without looking just but ugly. Um, you know, I looked at Lubuntu, but Lubuntu is just hideous on the eyes. <clears throat> Indeed, it looks that uh, it looks as though clean and beautiful design seem to be one of the guiding objective, uh, objectives of the Elementary OS project. So there, there's another one to to look at. It, it's still, you know, definitely on the beta side, but it seems to be fairly stable, and definitely it's the best looking Linux. Um, presentation I've ever tripped over. And again, it's pretty darn lightweight. It, it runs just fine on these 1101s. Finally, um, just to wrap it all up, I, there's no way I can't comment on the recently released or possibly leaked piece of the Witcher 3 world map. Um, it was so gorgeous, I had to recommend it as the wallpaper for the week, actually. And it really is a keen example of something that was discussed during the first podcast, namely the way in which a good fantasy map does more than just convey information to the viewer. Um, it actually also tells a bit of a story in its own way, in some way. Um, you know, you just look at it and you can see all these different places indicated and, you know, creatures populating the map and you kind of get a sense of um, how, you know, the exploration of the land will progress. All right, shout-outs. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Megervolp because of his Ultima 4 Remastered, which uh, came out this week. Well, sorry, no, it came out more over the weekend. I only got around to reporting on it this week. Um, but it might just be 
the best version of Ultima 4 out there right now. And also uh, a note of thanks to Golem Dragon, who stepped in to cover the additional Shroud of the Avatar news last week concerning uh, release 16. Um, those of you who don't know, I took ill last week, uh, basically had to walk away from the site for a week. So it was really, really sweet to see uh, Golem put at least a little bit of additional content on the site so that it didn't just completely fall silent. And always remember, if you out there would like to recommend anyone for a shout-out, uh, send an email to ultimacodex at gmail.com, which you can also use to suggest podcast topics, offer commentary or criticism about podcast episodes, and or volunteer your time as either an occasional or regular contributor to podcast sessions. As well, if you haven't already, you should totally sign on with the Ultima Dragons group on Facebook or on Google+. There's a community. The Facebook group is easier the lar easily the larger and more lively, but that just means that the Google Plus one needs a few more members. Uh, and this week I'll actually remember to post the links to both of those in the show notes. And finally, there is the Ultima Codex Patreon. Uh, a $10 pledge will get you access to Spam 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 Humbugs the day before they go live on the site. And with that, you'll be helping me maintain and with sufficient funding, expand the server infrastructure of the Codex to better deliver all the things you come looking for thereat. So on that note, you all have a good week, uh, a happy Easter, because it will be past Easter, most likely, when next there is a podcast episode. Be virtuous. Be virtuous.